Welcome to Women in Venture Capital. I'm Roshvina, a student at Harvard Business School with prior experience in finance and more recently venture capital in Africa. And I'm Anvita, Harvard Business School class of 22. I've actively worked in VC and tech startup space. Our mission at Women in Venture Capital is simple: increase the representation of women in the VC industry through awareness and engagement. So join us as we engage with women establishing their presence in VC. Our guest today is Caitlin Wardlicek, who joined Sageview Capital in 2021 and serves as a VP in the firm's Greenwich office. Prior to joining Sageview, she led the partnership and corporate development efforts at Sifted, formerly known as Veriship, a logistics software company in Kansas City. Before joining Sifted, she spent about three years at Summit Partners, sourcing and executing investments, including Clavio, a cloud guru, and Sifted. She began her career in technology investment banking at Harris Williams and Company, and graduated cum laude from Colby College, where she received a BA in economics with distinction. Welcome to the show, Caitlin. We are really, really happy to have you on. Thank you so much for having me. I'm really happy to be here. Super. So kicking it off with how you started your career in finance could you talk a little bit about what helped you decide that you want to kick off your career in finance so curious to hear on what led you to decide on that was there something that guided you towards this decision curious to hear that yeah for sure so um my family works in finance broadly and so i was introduced to like finance as a a general field early on Um my mom actually worked at a fund of funds called Harborvest and I interned there when I was um in sort of late high school early college as a summer job and it, this was literally sort of data entry for Harborvest it was nothing groundbreaking but um I uh, I had a manager who would kind of sit down with me and just let me ask questions and um I would I would ask you know why does this fund have you know um tons of portfolio companies and this other fund only has a handful and he would sort of explain to me the difference between well this is a venture capital fund and that's a buyout private equity fund and what does that mean so from a really early age i was really lucky to kind of get that description of of sort of what private equity was um and then i was at um at colby um which is a liberal arts school and i was an economics major and so i'd say from there i really leaned on my peers in the colby community and they really guided me through you know i think one thing about finance is that you're kind of asked early on before you um potentially explore other career paths whether or not you want to do it because the recruiting cycles are so early and so i had peers that kind of pushed me and said hey is this something you want to do and you know the first question is like okay you want to explore finance do you want to do investment banking or sales and trading and so i just kind of leaned on the colby community and talked to a lot of people and alums in those fields and sort of decided that i thought investment banking sounded um really exciting to me working like on a team on a project that had you know a deal that had a start and an end date versus sales and trading which is kind of a really fast paced trading floor um it, that just sounded to me a little more stressful than the idea of working with a team on on deals um and so i was drawn to investment banking for that reason um i was also lucky that my roommate was going through the recruiting process along with me and so Luckily she wanted to do sales and trading so we weren't really competing that much but we would sort of push each other we'd come back to the room and one of us would be sort of on a networking call and um we'd you know realize oh I should be doing that too and um 
And so I think all the, the I, I credit a lot of that to the Colby community. Um, there was a big event down in Boston every year too, where um, a leader from Harris Williams spoke who was a Colby alum. And, um, and that's ultimately how I got introduced to Colby or to Harris Williams um, and ultimately Summit Partners as well, which is where I ended up after Harris Williams. That's really exciting. I mean, it, it clearly is something foundational and um, exciting to see that you saw this growing up and almost became a part of what you saw as you were growing up to, to know whether you like it or not. And what I really liked was you jumping on and finding opportunities for yourself, making the most of the resources around you. So that's really nice to know. Um, you then moved into an operator experience. You spent a few years at Harris Williams and then moved to Summit. You also sourced the deal uh, at uh, Berry Ship, which is now sifted. Um, but then you decided to move and join Berry Ship. Uh, what did you look forward to learn when you were making that move? Yeah, so I think for my first two jobs, um, investment banking and then Summit Partners in the growth equity space, I was sort of optimizing for like skill development and opportunities. So I wanted to be somewhere where I was learning things that I found valuable and opening doors that I eventually, you know, as many doors as possible that I thought I'd eventually want to walk through. And when I was at Summit and thinking about kind of what was next, I started optimizing a little bit more for like, what do I want to do long-term with my career? Um, I always loved the, the companies that we worked, that I worked with at Harris Williams and, um, and at Summit, these sort of growth stage, mid-market um, software companies that are disrupting industries. And um, I started to wonder, do I want to continue kind of working with these companies on the outside as an investor or do I want to actually go and maybe someday run one of these companies, um, help help them grow from the inside? Um, so I did actually, I did apply to business school. I wasn't really sure what, how I was going to figure that out. And I thought business school could be one way to do that. Um, and then in my my last year at Summit, um, ended up sourcing Veriship um, uh, and an opportunity just sort of arose to to go work there and, and lead sort of a um, partnership strategy and help with corporate development. Um, I almost went to Kellogg and I was sort of having a conversation with my mentor at Summit about like, do I want to go to, do I want to go to Kellogg? I know it would be such a great experience. Um, and he sort of pushed me to think about like, if you want to go to business school, make sure you have a plan. It's essentially a two-year recruiting cycle. Um, that's, that's really what you go to business school for. And I felt like I didn't have a really solid plan. I knew that I wanted to figure out if I want to be an operator and I didn't feel like business school was the, the exact right way to do that. I felt like once I knew whether I wanted to be an operator, then maybe business school could be the right next step after that. But I had a step before that. And so, you know, he kind of, he was also really supportive of me and, um, you know, in, in using Verership as a way to figure out what I wanted to do um, and, you know, gave me this opportunity uh, where you know, he said, if things don't work out, that's, that's okay too. You know, we can help you pivot back um, to investing. And so I just really felt like it was um, sort of a risk-free opportunity to go try it out from the inside, really figure out if that's what I wanted to do. And then if, if I did want to reapply to school, I could. Um, so that was what the operating role for me was about. Um, I think the fact that I sourced the deal obviously made it a really great story to tell. And I already kind of knew the management team. I knew the market. I knew the company really well. And so 
um, I would say just in terms of advice, if, if anybody is sort of thinking about this, um, you know, opportunities where with deals that you've worked on are, are great opportunities because you're already very up to speed. Um, and then just make sure you're kind of building out that support network so that like, if you're doing this to figure out what you want, that you're sort of getting a step ahead and saying, what if it's not what I want? What's, what's sort of the step after that? And so I was really lucky to have that in my mentor. And, um, and I think it's an important thing to think about um, if you're thinking about moving into operating from investing. Very fair. And all that you were sharing felt like a deja vu to me because I was exactly in your shoes um, before I decided to um, also get into an operating experience after my investing uh, time at Sequoia and um, did end up spending about three years doing an operator role as well um, and then decided to also come to business school and I'm currently finishing that off. So um, I am sure the kind of questions you went through, what you were deciding, I was very much in your shoes and I'm sure the mentors you mentioned about who guided you, um, I feel like uh, the ones who I closely connected with also gave me a very similar thought process and advice. Um, and I think that in itself for me was a takeaway that you need to surround yourself with those um, trusted mentors almost who you can look up to for a very genuine advice, um, especially folks who have seen the journey in, in different capacities, either have lived it themselves or have seen it multiple times for you to know that you know their thoughts make, um, make a ton of sense for you to uh, reach out to them and be able to take a decision on what they mentioned could, could be the right next step. So that's super interesting to hear. And I'm sure your time at Perryship was awesome. Your decision there, um, you know, it was, was definitely something you don't want to trade off against. Um, from there, Caitlin, you also now joined Sageview as a vice principal. And I'm sure with that came um, a set of added responsibilities. I'm curious to hear how you're appreciating those and if you could walk through on how you plan on progressing from here. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and something you said there, I think just is interesting. It is, it, I think the investing world is very much an apprenticeship business. And so um, it's so helpful to have mentors, but also to have advocates. And, you know, there's, I think a difference between the two, we could probably go down a rabbit hole talking about it, but everything you just said on that resonates for sure. Um, yeah, at, at Sageview, I joined as a, a vice president about a year ago. And I think, um, I think as a, as a vice president versus an associate, there's, um, there's a few differences. I think mainly that you get a lot more agency um, and, and with that comes a lot more responsibility. Um, the agency piece is really exciting because you know you sort of spent all this time as an associate really developing your investment acumen and it feels like you have um, the ability to execute on those instincts um, that you've sort of spent a lot of time investing and honing over time. Um, but that can also, again, that comes with responsibility. Your, if you have more agency over where your team spends time, um, you know, time is, is something where you have the biggest opportunity cost. And so you're asking your team, your associates, um, and, and your partners to spend time on something that, you know, there's always other things you could be spending your time on. And so um, I think there's a little bit, I, at first, I was a little bit intimidated by that as well. Um, you know, but I got some advice from my mentor at Sageview, um, and I would argue my advocate at Sageview that, um, you know, to essentially not be afraid to take those risks, um, because that's what investing is. You you kind of always have to accept that you're taking on some risk, and to sort of think about the fact that, like, you know, you're probably going to do a bad deal at some point in your career, and don't let that fact sort of keep you from doing deals. 
um, because again, there's always unknowns in the in the investments that we're making and, and the risks that we take. Um, I also think that their responsibility comes in the form of managing associates, which is new. I think up until this point, I had been mostly an individual contributor, and um, I did I, I did manage some folks at um, a small team at Veriship, and so I'll say it's a little bit easier to manage um, people within the in, within um, you know investing versus in the operating world because I think you just get a much wider variety of people in the operating world. And that actually was really helpful for me. I read a book called Radical Candor, um, which helps, it's it's basically a management style book and how um, there is essentially two axes to good management. There's caring personally and delivering direct feedback. And when you can both care personally and you deliver direct feedback, that's what Radical Candor is. Um, and I think an important I mean, that sounds kind of straightforward and, and makes sense, but an important distinction is that radical candor is measured at the listener's ear and not at the speaker's mouth. And so that means that you really have to know kind of who you're talking to and you have to know the people that you're managing very personally in order to make sure the feedback you're delivering lands in a radically candor, candid way versus um, just you thinking that you're kind of speaking it that way. And so, um, those are kind of some of the challenges that, I, that I'm navigating as a vice president versus an associate um, as an individual contributor. That is very, very well put and super profound. Thanks for sharing that. Um, shifting gears a bit, we're talking more about the work uh, that keeps you busy every day. What are some of the recent sectors that you're excited about? And of course, we're living in a world where we are somewhere hopeful that there is gonna be a normal return slash we end up coexisting with these countless mutations of the coronavirus. And now the sudden, you know, hashtag great, great correction that we are witnessing in the whole of capital markets. Um, how do you place your thoughts on which are the key areas that, that you see driving most value creation today? Yeah, it's a good question. And again, one of my mentors from Summit, I, I asked him a lot of these questions um, you know, when, when I left Summit, the market was super hot. Turns out it still is pretty hot. Maybe it's, we're getting into a period of volatility right now. Who knows? I think there's been a couple times over the last, um, you know, decade where we thought that we're going to have a correction and, and then we haven't really. So we'll see what happens. But one of the things that he said that I've sort of, that I've sort of held on to, um, is that um, you know, as long as you're investing in companies that have strong sort of macro tailwinds that are resilient to market downturns, um, then the thing that a recession uh, will do is really elongate your hold period, um, but it won't, it won't necessarily impact the ultimate maybe multiple of money at the end of the day. Um, so, you know, could impact your IRR, but maybe not, but not your multiple of money. You just might need to ride the recession out. Um, and so, um, so I try to think in those terms when, I, and it dovetails nicely into your question about kind of what are some of the sectors I'm excited about. I, I think about it in terms of what are the sectors that I think, even if we go through a recession, there's enough sort of macro tailwinds to keep the businesses serving that sector growing over time. Um, and maybe, you know, struggling for a period of time, but ultimately surviving and thriving at the end of the day. Um, one area that I cover that I'm really excited about is supply chain. Um, supply chains, I've always really found them interesting, but I think especially in this post-COVID world, everybody's very focused on, on building a better supply chain, a more resilient supply chain. 
Um, I think over the last decade, supply chains have become increasingly complex due to you know, the rise in global trade, the like huge boom in e-commerce. Um, and then what happened was you know, with COVID, we had this massive disruption that highlighted the lack of visibility that a lot of these, um, that a lot of companies have into their supply chains. Um, and ultimately agility, meaning the ability to react to these disruptions um, in order to minimize business impacts. And so we're sort of at this crux where supply chain leaders are and, and leaders of businesses are ultimately investing in their supply chains so that they can weather um, another COVID or a natural disaster, all of which are, I think, increasing, or you know, we expect to increase in prevalence over time. Um, one of our investments um, in, in a supply chain business is called Specrite, which provides product data management, product specification data management. Um, so managing the, the very DNA level components of products. So think like the label on the tube of toothpaste or the ingredients that go into the toothpaste, managing those in a, in a scalable system of record and a source of truth instead of in like spreadsheets, um, which, is, which is pretty interesting. And then um, the Verishik now, now sifted, which I went to go work for is in the um, parcel logistics space. Um, so, so again, more in transportation. Um, I, that's another thing I love about the supply chain is just that it's so broad and there's so many different um, bottlenecks that can occur, which is where I think you know, technology has really interesting use cases. Uh, so I think that'll be a long-term trend that will continue to follow. Um, the one other I would mention would be online learning. Um, I, I, especially in sort of professional development settings. I think there's been an ongoing trend again, like pre-COVID um, where the ROI from training employees online and through sort of micro learning content is just so huge over like these legacy um, boot camps, you know, training boot camps that we used to send employees out to. They'd, you'd spend all this money flying employees out somewhere, hiring the teacher, the, the program, and then employees typically retain like 10% of that. And if you don't have to leave, you know, your office or your desk or, or your home these days. Um, and you can learn kind of in sort of more micro learning bite size, um, you know, pieces of content. I think that uh, there, the ROI in both sort of the, the money you save and the effectiveness of the training is, is like through the roof. So especially in sectors that have massive skills gaps, I think there's um, these two, these two really big forces that, um, you know, that are leading to a lot of these online learning companies growing quickly. And one company um, where I, that I worked on in uh, that you mentioned at the beginning here was a cloud guru. They're doing that for the um, cloud engineering space, and, which is a, a space with a, a massive skills gap as every single company is trying to move their infrastructure to the cloud and they don't have enough resources, skilled resources to do that. Um, and what a cloud guru did especially well was they really met the learner where they were, which was the beginning of their cloud journey. And they were helping to, um, you know, basically create new cloud engineers, which is ultimately what the industry needed. Um, so that, that business ultimately got acquired by Pluralsight and a really great outcome. Um, and I, I, I just thought that was a really beautiful product market fit story. <laughs> Love it. I haven't seen the product, but... From what you explain, I feel like, yeah, that makes a ton of sense. And to then get acquired by an incumbent like Pluralsight and see them use that as a growth strategy is also super impressive. Um, I'm totally with you on the industries and spaces you mentioned. I feel like those areas where, um, especially the earlier one that you mentioned about supply chain and logistics, 
is specifically those where with, because of the pandemic, there is that accelerated need of digitizing all the operations and how we've seen a bunch of these industries still operating on legacy systems or on um, even offline channels today with little or no interoperability, which made it very, very difficult to have any insights on how can that really be made efficient? So even 101 technologies that are simply digitizing certain platforms, making the workflows automated um, and giving better visibility and uh, interoperability for data to be used, analyzed and made sense of are also seeing immense uh, adoption and traction and on all for the right reasons. Um, and even on you know the upskilling slash ed tech space, I mean, it's that health, the healthcare and education I feel are two industries where there is I mean, infinite is a stretch, but as good as infinite paying capacity or willingness to pay, because there's always going to be a marginal improvement that you can make from where you are, um, which leaves room for innovations, opportunities, value creations that people will be willing to pay for, because you can never be as much educated as you can tomorrow be by any any kind of upskilling that you do for yourself. And similar for healthcare, you can always um, you know, take better care of yourself in, in some ways. So totally aligned. Thank you for sharing and giving very direct instances where you were a part of deals closely because that puts very true perspective as well. Um, this was super interesting. I totally agree with you. I think the intersection of actually healthcare and online learning is really interesting where um, I guess one other, one other space we're paying attention to now is the aging population. Um, as our, you know, I think it's something like that thousands of people turn 65 plus every week. Um, and that's thrusting a lot of people into it's, it's overwhelming the healthcare system and it's putting a lot of people into these sort of family caregiving roles. And we have an investment and in a company called CareWell that plays into this trend that provides a, um, it's an online retailer for home, home health products. Um, and they provide sort of 24 seven customer support to help these family caregivers navigate that. But um, getting back to your point about, I just think there's a need for more caregivers, um, home health aides out there. And, um, and so sort of the, the intersection of, um, of online training and home health is really interesting. There's a, there's a cool company in Boston called Care Academy that's addressing this um, pretty directly as well. So. Wonderful, totally with you. Um, and for the last time, shifting gears to completely, uh, you know, a different topic of discussion, but curious to hear your, from how, from your experiences, is it different to be a woman in the finance world, if at all? Um, and what do you think firms need to do to actively adopt um, to make this normal for us to not have this conversation in the first place? Yeah, absolutely. This is something we probably talk a lot about. Um, I think, I think that in terms of What's different, um, you know, women just have oftentimes a different framework of thinking. Um, I mean, just talk to like any married couple and I feel like you, you'll get that uh, people, different genders just think slightly differently. Um, and so if you're the only woman um, in on an investment team, you know, that's both a good and a bad thing because you're bringing new perspective to the table, which I think, um, is ultimately what makes a great investor and, and a great great investment team is lots of different perspectives. And so there's a, a really good thing about being a woman in finance right now because teams are recognizing that and they're wanting to diversify their teams. Um, but you know, there's also a challenge that comes with that, which is sometimes you feel like you're constantly sort of working against the grain. And there's, you know, maybe not as many people that sort of see the world the way you do um, on your team. And so um, 
I'd say again, there's there's a slight flip side to that or a positive side to that as well, which is, you know, when I do meet other women in the field, usually at other firms, um, you know, we we kind of instantly bond over um, over the way we look at the world versus maybe a lot of the people at our own firms do. And so there's a little bit of a um, maybe networking advantage. Uh, again, a disadvantage because there's not as many women in the industry, but an advantage because there's this sort of unique experience that we've all gone through that we can bond over. And so I think all of it, there's a little bit of a double-edged sword to it. Um, I think like one of the challenges that we're having in terms of diversifying the industry is that, you know, when it comes to, is, is when it comes to unconscious biases um, and and just things that I would say men do that maybe exclude women, again, unconsciously, uh, and they're not aware of it. Um, or even, uh, you know, women interpreting, interpreting feedback or um, even emails as, uh, the wrong way, again, because their minds work a little bit differently. Um, and I think that something you can do as an individual or something that I'm trying to do as an individual then, um, and, and I got this advice from another woman in the industry, um, is that, you know, if I feel like it's something I'm going to dwell on, then, um, then I should address it um, directly. And if it's something that I feel I can get over and I can let it go, then I should just let that go and focus on all the reasons why I really love what I do and I, and I love my job. And I think finding that balance is definitely a challenge. Like you can get caught up in some of the, um, the small unconscious biases um, or microaggressions or whatever, you know, whatever you want to kind of label it. And, and so balancing, um, letting things go and addressing things and speaking up is, um, is certainly a challenge. Um, in terms of what do firms, what do I think firms need to do? I think, um, I think again, it, we need to push firms to get rid of those unconscious biases. Um, things like, should we prioritize this new hire? Um, should we prioritize diversity or should we prioritize who the best candidate is for the role? Um, I think we really need to move away from that talk track because it kind of inherently says that the best person for the role uh, is probably not diverse. Um, and I think that that's, I think that that's not right. Um, I, I just think there's a better way to sort of think about it. Of course, we should prioritize for whoever is going to be best for the role. And that's probably somebody that's diverse, right? And think about the makeup of the team. And so things like that, that I think we just need to be pushing ourselves as firms um, to look at. And I don't have all the answers for that, for sure. Um, it's something I try to be actively involved in. Um, I, I did at Summit and I do at Sageview, um, but, uh, but it's sort of a constant effort. And agree more is there as well, Caitlin. I think what you mentioned earlier completely echoes like let your work speak and uh, let that take care of you know any hidden biases that is that you that maybe for all you know is in your head, uh, trying to give some benefit of the doubt and giving some you know thought of good intentions to the other other party in some way. But I feel like let all of that be overcome by the good work that you do, in, irrespective and independent of. Um, your fundamental identity by gender, by color, by race, or whatever. So, completely echo there. And um, um, and and yeah, this was a brilliant conversation. Thank you so much. Really appreciate all your honesty. And uh, you know, you've had a great journey, and you're only moving up from here. 
Uh, before we end the show, uh, we'd love to ask you, as we ask all, all our other guests, who is that one um, female mentor slash leader that you look up to and has always inspired you? Oh my gosh, that's actually a hard one because I feel like there are a lot of women who have inspired me. Um, but I guess at the end of the day, I would probably say my mom. Um, she was, uh, you know, a woman in a male-dominated field, and um, she. I think because of my mom, I, I always, I never grew up thinking like, oh, I'm not going to work. I always just assumed I would, and she always just kind of put in the time. She was really successful. She. Um, I don't know. I don't want to say like, oh, she didn't complain. And so that's the reason I look up to her. But um, I just think she's very down to business. And I admire that about her. And, uh, and so I would, I would say my mom. You know, my answer for that is the same. And eight out of 10 of our guests have the same answer. So it's, it's always beautiful to hear that. And I'm sure she, she sounds amazing. I'm sure she's, uh, She's great. Um, so with that, uh, we conclude the show. Thank you so much, Caitlin. The conversation was absolutely amazing. I personally enjoyed it. I'm sure our listeners will take away a lot as well. Thanks again for your time. Thanks so much for having me. This is really fun.